that it was all that they needed. Again, to be sure, that that's really going to be the purpose as we go through the whole book. But here in the prologue, here in chapter 1, in these first four verses, John gives us what is a great foundation to begin to build on. He gives us three sort of foundational truths that we all need to recognize as we begin to articulate what is it that we truly believe. And so those are the three things that I want us to see together this morning. Let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice here in this passage is that Christianity is above all else a person. It is a person. What we believe is not a doctrine per se. What we believe is a person. Notice throughout these four verses, John makes it clear what or who it is he is about to proclaim to them. It is one whom he has heard and seen and touched. Now, now, how does he describe it there? Well, he describes it as the word of life in verse 1. The life made manifest in the first part of verse 2. It's the eternal life in the second part there of verse 2. In other words, John is writing to them about life. And we may be thinking, well, what does that have to do with a person? Well, remember, the same John who wrote this little epistle is the same John who wrote the fourth gospel. And you recall that there in that prologue, he begins by using that phrase, the word. And he personifies that phrase. You remember he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, he, the word, was in the beginning with God. Now clearly, John's intention there is not simply to point us to the Bible, though he is doing that. His point is to point us to the Word made flesh in verse 14. You remember he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His intention there is to point us to Jesus. We'll go back to, to 1 John. What I want to submit to you is that while the phrase, the key word, has changed here to be sure, no longer is it the word per se. Now it is the life. His intent is the same. He is pointing us to Jesus. Now look, in terms of orthodox Christian thought, there's nothing surprising about what I'm saying to you right now, right? John's not doing anything here but repeating what he had recorded about Jesus in the, in the fourth gospel. You remember in John chapter 11, after Lazarus is raised, or before Lazarus is raised, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? There in John chapter 14, on top of your bulletin, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. None come to the Father except through me. This is not a novel concept, but what I want to submit to you today is it's hugely important. As John begins to describe the message of Christianity, as he begins to tell us what we are to believe, as he lays the foundation here, again, it's not primarily a doctrine. It's not a, a set of rules or a code of conduct. It's not the American or the Jewish or any other way of life. It's not a social club. It's not an organization. 
it's not even primarily a set of benefits that we receive or that we look to. No, here, Christianity, what we believe, it's a person. It's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eternal, pre-existent Son of God. Now look, I recognize just in that sentence alone, there is a, there's books full of theology. There are books full of doctrine in that one sentence. When we say that it is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eternal, pre-existent Son of God, books have been, have been written about those truths. And nobody loves that doctrine any more than I do. But if doctrine is all we have, if that's what we are looking to to save us, then friends, we've missed the life. It's not primarily doctrine that we're looking to. It is a person that we are looking to. It is Jesus himself. Jesus is the life. And so you have to have the person. Now, the New Testament shows that the Gospels particularly show us this so clearly. When you see people interact with Jesus, how much do they usually know about him? They don't know. They, can't, they could not have articulated so much of what we now articulate. And I'm so thankful that we can articulate those things. But can just consider the thief on the cross next to Jesus. How much theology did he know? Not a lot. He probably, he probably could not have told you about penal substitutionary atonement, though he was experiencing it right there. He probably didn't know a lot about the hypostatic union or, or, or any of those things. But what did he know? He knew that this man next to him was his Savior. He knew the person. He knew Christ. Jesus said today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, friends, I know I'm working this point sort of over here, but, but we can't emphasize it enough. For, for so many of us in our world today, Christianity has become just a means for us to get what we want. It's just a means by which we get hope and peace and eternal life. We get things, benefits, out of being a Christian. And to be sure, the Bible assures us of those things. But again, if those are the things that we are looking to, then we've missed the only one who can give us those things. We've missed the person himself. The person who in Acts chapter 4 it says has the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. Christianity. It is, and this is somewhat cheesy, but it's true. It is a relationship. And friends, as we're going to see in a moment, that, that relationship, praise God, is what Jesus has, has come to restore. It's what he's come to do. But it's important to know now, what does a relationship entail? It entails communication, right? It, it entails intimacy, and, and the best use of that word, closeness, right? It, it entails the, a sharing of feelings together. It entails thinking about the good of the other people. A relationship has requirements. No good, lasting relationship 
is going to go like this. All right, cool. Glad to meet you. Uh, thanks for all you can do for me. I'll call you when I need you. Now, I mean, that might work in, in, in the business world, but no real relationship is like that. One party is going to be dissatisfied if that's it, right? Well, why in the world would a holy and righteous God be satisfied with that kind of relationship with us? He has given us his son, and it is that son, and in him alone, that we find the object of our faith. He is the one that we look to. And so, what do we believe? First, we believe that that Christianity, it is a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice that, that Christianity is objectively conceived, but subjectively sealed. Objectively conceived, but subjectively sealed. Now, I recognize that that is a mouthful, and no, before you ask, I didn't come up with that on my own. I read it somewhere, but I can't remember where I read it, and so you're just going to have to trust me that I did read it somewhere. If, if the person who said that is listening, sorry. This is credit to you. But it describes, that phrase describes perfectly the second truth that John gives us here about Christianity. Notice, he is really concerned. He goes to great lengths to make his readers understand that what he is about to tell them about Jesus, uh, it's not hearsay. It's not second-hand knowledge. This, this is not a secret, what he's about to tell them. No, this is information from one who has experienced it firsthand. In other words, this is uh, objective experience. And you see that there in verse 1. He says, this is what... We heard John and the apostles. They heard the teachings of Jesus. They had those, those personal moments with him around the fire. Those personal moments after difficult circumstances where they were able to ask questions. Where they were able to receive assurances from their Lord. They heard. He says this is what we have seen with our eyes. They saw Christ in the flesh. They saw his miracles. They saw his compassion. They saw the resurrected Lord. Again, he repeats it. He says, we've seen it. And here the, the idea is we examined it. We tasted it. We, we, we picked it apart. You know, it's kind of like a, a science project. And that's not the best analogy. But they were able to really sort of get their hands dirty. They, they experienced Christ. And then finally, he says they touched it. And this is maybe the most intimate of all. They hugged the Savior. That they brushed up against him. That they felt the holes in his hands. To sum it up, John can testify to the historical reality of Jesus' life and teachings. He has experienced it with all of his senses. Again, back, if we go back to our introduction, we talked about Christian apologetics. And you'll know that this is often what people want when we do Christian apologetics. Their, their hang-up is on the historical Jesus. What was Jesus really like? Well, friends, John here is telling us what Jesus was really like. And so was Luke, and so was Paul, and so was Peter. This was objective experience. Notice, as important as that objective experience was, 
It's not just objective experience that John has. No, even more importantly, especially in the face of these Gnostic teachers, his experience is also subjective. And I mean that in the best sense of that word. What I don't mean is that it was, uh, they were able to define it however they wanted to, which is often the way that we use the word subjective. It is just whatever it means to me. I don't mean it that way. What I mean is that it was very personal. It's not just something that was out there that they saw with their eyes and they heard and they touched. No, it was, as he says there in the word, it was made manifest to them. It appeared. It was revealed to them by way of the Spirit of God. In other words, what they had experienced objectively, they now believe and know to be true because of God's gift of faith and the work of the Spirit in their hearts. Now, I'm going to give you an example that I hope will clear up what I'm trying to to say here. Compare John's experience and the other disciples' experience with the experience of Judas. Judas experienced objectively all of the same things that John and the other disciples experienced. He saw, he heard, and he touched. He had those intimate moments with the Savior when nobody else was around, when it was just the twelve. He, too, was with Christ for three years. But in the end, did Judas truly believe? Was Judas a believer? No. And why? Because Judas did not have that subjective experience that I'm talking to you about now. He could not, he he could, he could tell you the facts about Christ. He may even have believed some of those facts to be true. But guess what? James says that the the demons believe all of those things too. That they believe them and they tremble. What Judas lacked was the inner work of the Spirit. Now, what's the point of all of this? Well, Well, friends, objective experience is still important. You know, none of us can experience Christ as the disciples did. We, we can't touch him. We can't see him physically with our eyes. You know, we can't do any of those things. But we can experience him in an objective way through his word. We can have an understanding of the historical Christ through this book that is before us. But as important as that is, it means very little without a changed heart. It means very little if we are not resting in the one whom we encounter here in this world. It means very little if the Spirit is not applying these truths to our hearts. If he is not personal to you, if it is not, again, a relationship, if he is not your whole world view, your all in all, then you may have a lot, you may know a lot about him, don't have him. And without him, there is no life. So what do we believe? We believe that Christianity is a person. We believe that it is objectively conceived but subjectively sealed. And then thirdly and finally in this passage, I want you to notice that Christianity, it means fellowship restored. Fellowship restored. And you see that there in verse 3. Now, if Christ 
is the focus of this prologue. If he is the focus of the book as a whole, then John is getting us here to the heart of what Christ came to do. Jesus came into the world. He lived, died, and rose again in order that he might restore fellowship. And that restoration of fellowship begins with our relationship, with the relationship between God and man. Look at the the second part of verse 3 there. And he says, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Christ has called those who were enemies of God, those who had gone astray, sinners who had gone their own way. He has called them back into fellowship with the triune God. What what Adam lost in the garden, both for himself and all of mankind, that closeness, that, that intimacy, that fellowship he had in the garden, Christ has secured for us once again and once and for all. He has opened the way, not just to the temple, not just to a physical holy of holies, but as we prayed this morning, He has opened the way into the very presence of God. You remember in Hebrews chapter 4, the author there talks about our great high priest who has opened the way into the very throne room of God so that we can find mercy in our time of need. We can find grace before God's awesome and mighty throne. And we now, as those who are united to Christ, have access to the throne of grace. We have the right to call the maker of heaven and earth Father. The animosity, the the enmity, the wrath that stood between us and him is now gone. Friends, whether we recognize it or not, that, that is all of us. We come into this world and this is our greatest need. To have that relationship with our maker restored once and for all, and we can't do it, and nobody else can do it, but Christ, he has done it. But notice, it's not only fellowship with God that has been restored. Notice also that, that it is fellowship with each other that has been restored as well. The first part of verse 3 there, it says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Friends, we we cannot be united to Christ and not also united to God's people, also united to each other. His blood has bound us together so that the things that that once stood between us, uh, differences, disagreements, race, nationality, all of those things, they now fall away, or they at least recede to the background under the kingship of our Lord. We truly are his people. We truly are one body under our head, Jesus Christ. Again, friends, don't don't miss this point. As people who live in a fallen world, all of us have experienced some level of brokenness in our relationships, whether it's marriage relationships, whether it's friendships, whether it's with our children, whether it's just the the brokenness that we see out in the world right now, and it's always there in front of us. And people are constantly looking for ways to restore that relationship. 
Friends, what the Bible tells us, if, if we want that, those relationships restored, the only hope that we have is in Christ, in Him alone. He is the one who can restore even the worst, even the most broken relationships. But as we conclude, uh, let me say to you that, that even if he doesn't restore those relationships, at least here on earth, what he has done has, again, called us into relationship with himself. And in that relationship, we find what, what real love, real forgiveness, real fellowship, what it really looks like. Your earthly relationships, they, they may be terrible. They may be trash. But your Savior... He has called you into something everlasting, a relationship with him. It is truly fellowship restored. Well, friends, that's where we're going to leave it for today. But as we do that, uh, let me ask you just uh, the simple question of where we began. What is it that you believe? Do you believe in a person? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior of sinners? Do you believe the, the objective truth of what he did, what was revealed about him in Scripture through the, the illuminating work of the Spirit in us? Do you believe that Christ has restored fellowship? Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with himself, fellowship with others. Obviously, there, there's far more that we can say about what we believe, and John's going to get us there in the course of this study. Again, friends, these are our foundational truths. It's a foundational place to start. Today, no matter where you may be in your walk of faith, I want to encourage you. Look to Christ. Believe in Him. Uh, he will give you life and life everlasting. And there in verse 4, I, I'm not going to skip it. Verse 4, He will also give you through that fellowship that you have with Him, fellowship that you have with others, He will give you joy. Joy that, that is complete. As we pray together, Father God, uh, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have not left us to consider what we are to believe about you on our own, not to, not to make up our own ideas, our own thoughts, uh, but Lord, you have given us your word. You have given us your spirit who writes these truths on our hearts. Uh, and so we pray that as we consider these things, that you would uh, be at work in us. Help us to, to trust, not in the things of this world, uh, not simply in his benefits, but help us to trust in Christ and in him alone. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that you would remind us always of the fellowship that we now have with you because of Christ's sacrifice. And Lord, that that would be a fellowship that, that extends even to those around us, even to those here in our church family. Uh, and Lord, we pray that as we go out into the world, uh, that you would help us to be always ready to give an account of this hope that we have. Help us to be able to articulate these truths in a way that is honoring to you, in a way that would draw people to the only Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.